So we are going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and we find ourselves in a place in chapter 2 where we are studying the redemptive story of God, a.k.a. the gospel. And in Ephesians chapter 2, specifically verses 1 through 10, it contains so many truths that are vital to our understanding of the gospel message. Now, to make sure that we connect all the pieces and we give proper context, we are building two rails, two separate rails, for the train of the gospel to move forward on. The first of those rails is the big picture of redemption, the picture that begins in the book of Genesis and it ends in the book of Revelation. It's kind of the 30,000-foot view of the redemptive story of God. And then also, the second rail is going to be the one that provides individual truths out of Ephesians chapter 2 that helps us understand what that big picture is all about. Consider that to be like the 30-foot view. And so far, we've spent a couple of weeks just really digging into the beginning of this redemptive story to make sure that we understand it correctly. So we started with one key truth, and this is kind of your 30,000-foot view of the redemptive story of God. This same piece can be traced all the way through the Bible. That is, humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. That's the 30,000-foot view. Now, we went into what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 tells us about that statement. It actually helps us understand why it is that we have been relationally separated from God and why it is that we are in need of redemption. So there are a number of pieces that we found in the first three verses. It tells us that apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sin, alive to the lust of the flesh, and by nature, children of wrath. Those are the key pieces to help us understand what this one big statement is all about. Now, starting in verses 4 and 5, we move from the sin that separated us to Jesus's work that reconciled us. We move from the first Adam to the second Adam, who is Jesus. The first Adam we understood is one in which we are physically born into the first Adam and under the curse of sin. When somebody is a Christian, they are born again, what Jesus says, John chapter 3, now they come under the covenant of grace. This first Adam brought death. The second Adam, who is Jesus, brings life. First Adam brought separation. Second Adam, Jesus brings reconciliation. Now we are in this second part. So here's our second key truth. And again, this is 30,000 foot view, big story, redemptive story of God. God loved us while we were sinners and made reconciliation possible through Jesus's death and resurrection. That's the big statement. Now that second truth is one that needs to be unpacked. I have stated multiple times before, that the gospel is the good news of God's design, sin's intrusion, and Christ's solution for human flourishing. There's three basic parts in that story. Now, what you're going to find tonight is sometimes people take that last section, Christ's solution for human flourishing, and they break it down into two different pieces. I'll get to that in just a moment. Our first truth that we talked about, humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. This first truth has the first two parts of that. That is God's design, designed for relationship, and sin's intrusion. That is sin separated that relationship. 
The second truth is Christ's solution for human flourishing. Jesus did what we could not do. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead bodily from the dead three days later that we might experience life. And he offers reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus. Now, that is the second big truth. And we're going to spend almost the entire message tonight seeing the 30,000-foot view of this. The reason I'm doing that is because many times people will hear Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection is what I need to be saved. Jesus is the one who allows reconciliation to be possible. But how did that happen? It's one thing to know he is the Savior. It's another thing to understand what he did in the process of saving us. It's important for us to know each of these different parts. When we were worshiping just a few moments ago, there were key points of theology that were coming out in those different statements. Something that makes worship come alive is when you have a clear view of what Jesus did on our behalf. And whenever you are singing it, and there's those moments along the way where all of a sudden it's like God overwhelms us and we're like, I see it more clearly. I understand it more right now. In those moments, it should move us. There should be times, listen, there should be times in worship services you're not okay in that moment. It should stir you when you see what Jesus has done on our behalf. So I invite you, go with me once again in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 4 and 5. I am speaking this evening on the subject of redemption in spiritual life. Redemption in spiritual life. We're discovering tonight what it is that Jesus did that enabled spiritually dead sinners to become spiritually alive saints. He's the one who did the work. And Lord willing, by the time we see it tonight, hopefully there's going to be pieces in our heart that we're looking at and we're like, the Bible came alive again. I understand it more. I see the big picture more. And the more we see what God has done, the greater and greater our appreciation and our worship for Jesus should be. So let's read Ephesians chapter number two, verses four and five tonight. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, help us to see. Help us to see. May the pieces of your word come together. May your spirit connect parts that all of a sudden there is an overwhelming awareness of what you have been doing in this beautiful, redemptive story. God, may we see it clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. The redemptive story of God, as I've already stated, has those three key parts I've mentioned multiple times before. The gospel is the good news of God's design that takes us back to creation. Sin's intrusion, that's the fall. And Christ's solution for human flourishing. Sometimes that's broken down into two different categories, redemption and restoration. 
If you were to look at much of the storyline in the Bible, you can see all of the different pieces under those four headings, if you wanted to just use those four. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Or as I've mentioned so far, God's design, sin's intrusion, and Christ's solution for human flourishing, which includes redemption as well as restoration. That's the basic storyline of the Bible. Now, every great story has a solid storyline. Uh, the novels that we don't like, the movies that drive us crazy are the ones that you watch and you cannot figure out a storyline to save your life. Uh, seven Years in Tibet was a movie like that for me. I feel like I lost seven years of my life watching that one movie. To this day, I still have no idea what that thing was about. Bored me to tears. Praise the Lord, the redemptive story of God has a clear, clear storyline. Now, over the years, I have shared the same six statements to help pull out that storyline a little bit more. Same ones I've shared ever since I've been right here at Sherwood. Here they are again. Notice the emphasis all the way through on relationship. I believe these were probably in your notes. Humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sins separated us from that relationship. There was nothing we could do to reconcile the relationship on our own. Notice relationship, relationship, relationship. Then it moves to what Jesus has done. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus rose from the dead that we might experience life. Jesus offers eternal life as he defined it, John 17, 3, which is a, a relationship, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. Every part of the story comes back to relationship. Now, your entire Bible, what I'm wanting you to see, your entire Bible from Genesis through Revelation, it has one clear storyline. There is a redemptive story. Starts in creation, moves to the fall, comes to redemption, and then moves to restoration. It's one redemptive story that goes all the way through. Now, here's the thing. The focus of it is on relationship, but there's different places that an emphasis is different about that relationship. So there are times in scripture when it describes our created purpose for relationship. There are times when it emphasizes the sin that separated the relationship. There are times when it's scripture shows humanity's attempt to try to reconcile the relationship through religion and good works. There's times that scripture describes Jesus's work to reconcile the relationship. There's times when scripture focuses on key parts of the relationship like faith, trust, respect, love, communication, forgiveness, grace, mercy. There are times when scripture points to the fullness of that future relationship, but ultimately it all comes back to relationship. Now here's this key truth again. God loved us while we were sinners and made reconciliation possible through Jesus's death and resurrection. To say God made reconciliation possible through Jesus is one thing. To understand how he made reconciliation possible through Jesus is another. I'm going to come back to a couple of key points within this verse in weeks to come. It talks about God rich in mercy. We want to talk about that mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. We're going to talk about that love. We're not going to do it tonight. Instead, I want us to pull back into that 30,000-foot view to see the big piece. That is, there's three parts 
of Jesus's life that help us understand how it is that we have been made alive together with Christ. I'm going to give them to you very quickly. Jesus's birth, Jesus's death, Jesus's resurrection. Jesus's birth, Jesus's death, Jesus's resurrection. Now, if you've noticed at this point, that's the end of your fill in the blanks. I like to let people know that just in case they're wondering. Okay, so here's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. I've got another graphic on the other side that I want us to see. And we are going to walk through the redemptive story of God. And the reason I want all your fill in the blanks to already be done at this point is because I want you to be able to have clear focus and attention for the next 20 minutes or so. What I'm trying to do on this is sometimes when I give statements and we got list and I've already given you three pieces on one and I said you can take the third one and break it down into two more and then I give six points for the gospel message. It's almost like, all right, is it six? Is it three? Is it four? Is it five? Where does it all line out? So this, Lord willing, we're going to walk it through tonight so that people are able to understand it. Jesus' birth, right in the center here, Jesus' birth it marks a key turning point in the relational story of God. This point right here. And I want you to see why that point is so unbelievably important. The Bible begins way over there in creation. God is in the creative process. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them for relationship. God was with them in the garden. He created a perfect environment for that relationship to flourish. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no separation between God and his creation. However, when Adam and Eve sinned, the relationship changed. Sin led to spiritual death. That's what we talked about last week. That spiritual death was separation between God as well as his creation. Now, it's important for us to note that God never stopped loving Adam and Eve, but rather the holiness of God requires separation from sin. After this point, God's design, he's with us. After sin's intrusion, here's what you begin to notice, the wording that happens throughout much of your Old Testament. It goes from God with them in the garden, sin separating that relationship, and then you begin to hear things of God being among his people. There is this new dynamic that's now happened. There is not the closeness that was once there in the garden where God and Adam are walking in partnership in creation and, and Adam is naming the animals and there is this beautiful, wonderful union that's happening. Instead, there's now this separation that you now find through much of your Old Testament. Now you find that there's moments in which it describes things like the glory of God coming down on a mountain and saying, if anybody touched the mountain, they would die. That's a major separation happening. Then you would also notice that as the children of Israel traveled, they would set up different tents along the way for worship, different little tabernacles that they would set up. And many times you would find that there was separation points within that. You find separation points within the temple itself. You have the outer courts, the inner courts. You've got the Holy of Holies. Only certain people, high priest, one time a year can go into the Holy of Holies. There's separation. God is among his people. And this is an important distinction that we need to make. 
So the degree of separation has now begun to occur. The people knew that God was still with them, among them, because of the visible presence of God that was referred to as his glory. The Hebrew people referred to it as the cloud. They called it the fire. They called it the Shekinah, the glory of God. This cloud was seen in the exodus of Egypt. God gave the people a cloud to follow by day and a pillar of fire for guidance at night. Exodus chapter 14, verse 24. This cloud was seen on Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. The Bible says the entire mountain was enveloped within the glory of God. Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. As the people moved in the wilderness for 40 years, they constructed these portable places of worship and sacrifice. They knew that God was still among them because the glory of God was said to fill the tent. It covered it within a cloud. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. God was among his people. But the presence of God among them did not fix the original problem of sin. Sin only grew worse over time. At one point, sin was so bad, God wipes humanity off the face of the earth and starts over with Noah and his family. At another point, sin increased again. He wipes out two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, completely for unrighteousness. Humanity is not turning back to God in repentance. It seemed like the further things went, the worse and worse sin became. But there was still hope. There was hope because the prophet spoke of this individual who would come, a chosen individual, and he would save his people. The Hebrew word is Messiah. The New Testament Greek word is Christos or Christ. It was prophesied that Messiah would come from David's lineage. He would establish a kingdom right here on earth. He would usher in an era of peace. He would die as a sacrifice for sin. Prophecies said that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. He would enter Jerusalem in triumph, be betrayed by one of his followers, tried and condemned, die by crucifixion, and then rise from the dead. Sixty major prophecies about who Messiah would be with 270 ramifications. For hundreds of years, they've waited, and sin got worse. Hundreds of years... God sends prophet after prophet with the same message, repent of your sin and return to me. Repent of your sin and return to me. But the people were caught in this vicious cycle of sin. They would go from repentance to rebellion, from being sorry for what they did to once again acting in sin. Finally, God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse number 4. Listen to what it says. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud. You see the terminology? And the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. It's a picture of the visible presence of God being lifted up above the temple. Now it goes on to say in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, 
It says, then the glory of the Lord. Remember, the visible presence. How did they know that, the, that God was among them? There was this visible presence, the glory of God, the cloud, the fire. Here's what it says. Then the glory of the Lord moved from the door of the temple and hovered above the cherubim. And as I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord's temple. And the glory of God of Israel hovered above them. Now the glory of God, which hovered above the temple, has moved to the eastern gate. Then Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, it says, Then the cherubim lifted their wings, and they rose into the air with their wheel beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the city, stopped to the mountain of the east, and so ended the vision. Did you see what just happened? Almost 600 years before the birth of Christ, Ezekiel is describing this glory of God coming up from the temple, moving to the eastern gate, moving out to the mountains to the east, and then disappearing. Remember the basic story of the Bible, the 30,000-foot view. God created us for relationship. Sin separated that relationship. God sends prophet after prophet, repent, return, repent, return. And after thousands of years of rejection, God's visible presence, the, that glory, the Shekinah, it goes from being with his people to among his people to removed from the people. 600-year period of time. Six, not that God is absent, but that visible presence that we see mentioned. And just as unexpectedly as the visible presence leaves, we now find that an angel comes to Joseph and he says, she will bear a son and you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hold on just a moment. How did the story begin? What, what happened right here? Why did the presence of God, 600 years, visible presence of God, why did it leave? It's the sins of the people. Then scripture goes on to say, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Here's what he said. You will call him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. They will call him Emmanuel because it's God with us. Watch. Creation, God with us in the garden. Sin's intrusion among us, among his people. Moving over because of the sin, it gets harder and harder, more and more pronounced. The visible presence of God, according to Ezekiel, has lifted above the temple and it disappears over the eastern mountain. Now you have, with the announcement of Jesus being born, basically the angel is saying, you're going to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But they will call him Emmanuel because it is God with us. Notice the Shekinah comes up, comes up, again, God with us, birth of Jesus. Watch what happens here. Notice what takes place within the story. The glory of God last seen in Ezekiel's day over the mountains to the east of Jerusalem. 
Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, Magi, from the east, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. They could only describe this this light, this glory is a star. We know that's not a normal star because this star would move with them. It disappears at one point and it reappears in another point. Just as the glory of God departed in the eastern sky, it reappears 600 years later in the same eastern sky. The glory returns. Where does it return? Birth of Jesus. Okay, so remember 4,000 years of recorded history within the Old Testament. It shows this relational roller coaster. Visible presence of God, his transition from being with us in the garden, among us through much of the Old Testament. Visible presence removed from us 600 years, and then back with us in the birth of Christ. What separated us in the garden? Sin. After the fall, sin gets worse. The angel tells Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How could he save us from our sins? Because he is sinless. Listen to what scripture says, 1 Peter chapter 2, 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. John said, in him is no sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Paul said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was sinless. The penalty of sin is death, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not die for his sin. He died for the sin of the world. That is the second major point in Jesus' story. It's Jesus' death. Our sin, if you'll remember, last week brought spiritual death. And we talked about it extensively from verses 1 through 3. Now, the issue is we could do nothing to reconcile that relationship. Totally helpless. We had nothing that we could do to make things right. If something is going to happen, if there is going to be a reconciliation, then it has to be that God is acting for us. He's the one who has to pay our sin debt. Now, this story has been around for a number of years. Call it a parable, call it a story, whatever it might be. It's probably one of the clearest examples that we could get our mind around about what just took place. So the story is of two college roommates who they both departed or parted ways after college. One became a very successful businessman. The other one went into law and eventually became a judge. Their lives were reconnected at one point because the businessman was being charged because he embezzled funds from the company. As fate would have it, he was supposed to appear before his former college roommate. And everybody was wondering, how are they going to handle this? 
The media was just abuzz with, is there going to be mercy or is there going to be justice? Would the judge have compassion for his former roommate and mercifully lessen the sentence? Or would the judge act with full accordance of justice and level the highest level of, I guess, punishment for that crime? The jury found the man to be guilty. When it came time for him to be sentenced, the crowds eagerly awaited, is the judge going to have justice or is he going to act in mercy? People were on the edge of their seat. The judge issued the most severe sentence possible. He leveled the highest fine that the law would allow. And then right after that, he stands up, he takes off his robes, he walks around to the front of the bench, and he says, I have sold my house, I've sold my cars, I've emptied my bank accounts, I have paid everything in order to make sure that that debt is paid in full. You are now free to go. And the crowd was stunned. In that moment, that judge showed justice as well as mercy. Justice demands the penalty be paid. Mercy begs for compassion to be shown. By paying the penalty, and declaring the man free, the judge showed both justice and mercy. When humanity came before the courts of God, we were found guilty as charged. The question became, would God as our creator show justice or would he have mercy? He did both. He lays aside the glory and the splendor of heaven. He clothes himself in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He dies a substitutionary death on the cross for our sin. He rose from the dead that we might experience eternal life. And he makes reconciliation possible. He allows us to be reconciled, our debt forgiven, so that we can walk in freedom and liberty because of what he has done for us. That's what Jesus has done on our behalf. His birth, his death, his resurrection. Now, the resurrection is incredibly important. Go back to your original storyline. If the whole story is about relationship, humanity created for relationship, sin separates the relationship. We could do nothing to reconcile it. Jesus acted on our behalf. But here's the thing. If the whole story is about humanity experiencing reconciled relationship with our creator, if God is dead, there is still no relationship. His death on the cross pays the sin debt. His resurrection is what makes eternal life, a reconciled relationship, possible. Here's our truths that we've been talking about. God loved us while we were sinners and made reconciliation possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, here's just a final thought. The glory disappears over the eastern sky in Ezekiel's day, reappears with the birth of Christ, eastern sky, as the magi see the star over Christ. After Jesus' resurrection, he goes to the same Mount of Olives. He ascends back into the eastern sky, Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Before he is crucified, he gives his disciples a promise. John chapter 14, verse 17, he says, I'm sending another comforter who will be with you. Here it is, with you and in you. Do you see what's now happened? 
Okay, starts, create a design. He's with us. Sin's intrusion among us. Sin continues. The visible presence gone. Jesus is born. He's with us. Then he says, I'm sending another one to you, a comforter who will be with you and he will be in you. It doesn't get any closer in relationship than the God of this universe indwelling the lives of his people. That's why this is so beautiful. And listen, one day, it's not even done. One day, the same eastern sky is going to split. And Jesus comes back again for his bride. You see the beauty of how this just lays out through Scripture? The whole story is redemption. It's relationship. It's, it's the fact we've been created for this relationship. And you just watch as our creator, he says, I'm going to address it here. I'm going to address it there. I'm sending my son. I'll pay the sin debt so that we might experience relationship. Humanity separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. God loved us while we were sinners and made reconciliation possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. He's done everything that is necessary for us to be rightly related to him. This next week, as you open up the word and you're spending time with God, ask God to give you new eyes to see the beauty of this redemptive story. The more you dig into it, the more you find there's not a place in Scripture that's not pointing you back towards Jesus. It's always about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you would allow our hearts, our minds, our focus, our attention to constantly be directed back towards the beauty of the gospel. God, may we see your, your handprint, see your movement through Scripture. And Lord, we'll be grateful for what you do. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful night. See you this next week.